Our focus this morning is on a birth story. It's a birth story told in Genesis 3 and verse 15. I wonder if you'd look at it with me. The Lord God spoke to the serpent and said, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here at the very beginning of the Bible is a promise, a promise of an offspring born, the seed of a woman to do battle and to defeat the seed of the serpent. Here at the beginning, the promise of the birth of the serpent crusher, the champion of heaven, born on earth as a man. This is the big story of the Bible, isn't it? But when does he come? When does this serpent crusher come? So many births in the Bible, aren't there? Is it Cain? Is it Abel? Jacob? Esau? Joseph? Is he the one? Moses? Samson? Boaz? Samuel? When does the serpent crusher come? Well, it's a Christmas, isn't it? The offspring who beat Satan, that old dragon, was born after long promise. And we celebrate his arrival at Christmas. This is the big story of all of history. History is his story. It is the story of the Lord Jesus, the champion who defeats the serpent, the dragon, Satan. He's had so many names, but Jesus is his nemesis. Jesus is his end. Jesus is his undoing. Jesus crushes the serpent, and all the Bible is about it. Every story in the Bible, every birth story in the Bible longs for his bigger story. So today we begin a new series that will take us actually through to Christmas. And we're going to look at the birth stories in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at each of them in turn and see how they point us to the big story of Jesus. Now you're thinking, why? Why on earth do that, Ollie? I mean, sounds a bit like another one of the pastor's harebrained schemes again. Why look at this? Well, I think because if we told the truth about ourselves, we'd remember that sometimes we forget the gospel. Because some of us, if we're honest, maybe have lost the wow. Some of us feel like we've lost the wonder at Christ. Some of us feel like we don't marvel at the good news very much these days. It's all a bit flat. I wonder maybe you've been to the supermarket recently and you've seen the shopping aisles, that one aisle, and soon to be many more, already stocking up with Christmas things. Now, sure, it's commercial uh, nonsense, really, isn't it, most of that? But you notice, even in your heart, even at the slightest mention of Christmas, your, your heart doesn't get going like it used to. Now, sometimes our emotions are like that. We should be honest about that. Our emotional lives vary, don't they? But underneath it all, we can know joy in Christ, can't we? And so this term, we want to open ourselves up again to marvel at the Lord Jesus. We want to see just how big his story is. We want to be knocked off our feet. We want to be surprised and comforted and confronted at the wonder of a Christ that appeared the first Christmas. See, Christmas didn't just drop out of the sky. The first the nativity wasn't simply the next thing that happened. No, it was a long-awaited battle cry. Christmas, we often talk about as an announcement of peace, don't we? But it's only the announcement of peace because Christmas is also the declaration of war. 
finally, the offspring of the woman arrived in the manger in Bethlehem to do battle with the old dragon, the serpent, and his forces. Generation after generation wrestled, fought against the serpent. But in Christ came the victor. Lost the marvel? Lost the wonder? Well, how about we take things right back to the beginning then? And let's follow these births and these battles. So first then, we consider this first birth story. Genesis 3, verse 15. The promise of the birth of a seed, a serpent-crushing offspring. Martin Luther, the uh, reformer, famously called this verse the proto-euangelion. It's Greek, so you can forget it. Uh, He meant this is the first proclamation of the gospel in the Bible. So it's pretty exciting. It's pretty good. But to understand it, uh, we need to first see it in its context. So we're going to have a couple of points of context and then look at this promise. Um, So first then, look, let's see the context of this big promise. First, look, we see in these early chapters of Genesis how God, as it were, birthed Adam. Before we hear of the birth of the serpent-crushing seed, we need to see the arrival of the first seed of, 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 of Adam, don't we? God birthed Adam, didn't he? I mean, it's kind of a funny way of putting it, isn't it? But God made him. He came from the Lord God, didn't he? I mean, Adam and Eve weren't born in the conventional way, were they? But God made them, and he made them to go and self-produce and have children and perpetuate and so on. Flick back to chapter 1 and verse 27 to see how they're described. Flick over the page. It's indented there for you. Chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Do you see that? In his image, he made them. Uh, Now, let me ask you, how do you get someone's image? You get your image from your parents. Some of you might even have parents in this room, so you can testify to that being true. Like father, like son, they say, don't they? Uh, There is a sense in which God made humanity to be his children. They are birthed by him, as it were, to be his children. Luke in his gospel understands it this way. Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. You don't need to turn it up, but let me turn to what he says. He talks about Jesus. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, who was the son of Heli. Who was the son of, who was the son of, who was the son of. He traces it back. The son of Adam. And what does Luke call Adam? The son of God. What? What? I think we need to stop and marvel at this point. God made Adam perfect. Made him good, but that wasn't the half of it. God made him to be like a son, to be his very child. How do you think you would feel if you saw Adam as he was then in the garden? How do you think you'd feel? I think the beauty and the glory of seeing a a perfect image bearer of God, I think would just knock us off our feet. I think think we'd probably bow down in worship. Because Adam looked like God. He was a son of God. Some of you might have been watching, is it the third series of David Attenborough's nature documentary, Planet Earth? Is it third? Thank you, third. It's beautiful, isn't it? 
The nature you see is stunning. I, I watch it. I can't believe how beautiful some of these creatures are. The vibrant oranges, the flowing purples, the deep fluorescent bright eyes of some of these creatures, their, their form and pose, the beauty of the shapes of these creatures. You just think, wow. It's stunning what they've shown, the cinematography and so on. But it's, you know, it's not a patch on the glory of Adam and Eve as they were then. The creation was perfect. The creatures were perfect, but Adam and Eve were the pinnacle. Now, we need to see this, don't we? We need to drink this in and marvel. This is what we were meant to be. Look at your hands and your feet for a minute. Look at your wrists and your fingers. A bit old and fragile, not what they used to be, perhaps. What could I have been? What was I meant for? One who could walk in the garden in the very presence of God, a son of God. Wow. If you visit the um, British Museum in London, you'll see some of the greatest um, creations of human culture, including the controversial um, Elgin marbles, the Greek statues. You know, these Greek statues in the, in the British Museum, statues and busts and sculptures. Imagine taking a look at those statues. And you see them, you know, there's arms and feet knocked off them. They've been mishandled over the years. But imagine those statues in the Pantheon in Greece. Imagine them, their, 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 their picture of the human physique, their positioning glory on that mountain. Look in your mind's eye beyond to that. <laughs> it's totally breathtaking, isn't it? I mean, totally, totally glorious. And I take it that as we read the Bible, we should be doing that as we read of Adam and Eve. How glorious, how beautiful. This is the true story of how the world was really meant to be. Friends, it's not flat. It's not, it's not boring. It's not ordinary, is it? That is our history. That is what we were meant for, what we were meant to be. Wow. God made mankind in his image. They were birthed by him. They were his children. There was nothing in the entire created cosmos that could come near them, be more glorious than these sons of God. They were the children of the great king. I think C.S. Lewis has it spot on in his Narnia books when he puts the children on the thrones in Care Paravel. Our family tree goes back to the great king of all. Would you look at that? No, seriously, would you look at that? Our story, your story, is about a return to that glory. Sometimes people in our culture with a sort of materialistic view say that all we are is atoms, all we are is flesh. Men are worms, and mankind is junk, you can treat them like junk. Uh, that's patently untrue, isn't it, as we look at the Bible? I don't think other religions have it much better. And more often than not, other religions seem to imply that human beings are made to serve needy gods. Humanity is workhorses and slaves to a higher power. The Bible tells us something different, doesn't it? Humanity is not made to serve God as if God needed serving. Humanity is made to bear God's image. Humanity are made as God's children, as kings and queens of creation. Can you see how big is your story? Uh, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You're just looking in on things, considering them. Here's what I hope you'll be thinking. 
I hope you'll be thinking, I'm not sure if this is true. I'm not sure if I believe it's true. But boy, I wish it was. Because how glorious is that? Friends, if we haven't understood how majestic the story of humanity is, we haven't understood the Bible properly. And it should cause us to marvel and wow. There should, the spine should tingle at the thought of what we were meant for. Notice, God made Adam. He birthed him to be his child, king and queens in the garden. But number two, look, notice. Adam having been made for so much, God birthing Adam into the world, well, Adam birthed sin. God had made Adam and Eve to go and fill the world, hadn't he? They were to self-perpetuate. They were to, they were to give birth. <laughs> they were to bring life and fruitfulness. They were to have children. They were to expand God's image-bearing people. God's image reflected as human beings filled the earth. They would have been in partnership with God. What joy. But as chapter 3 begins, we notice uh, he, the hum, humankind left on their own. And another person enters the fray. Look, look at Genesis 3 verse 1. Now enters the serpent. And where's Adam? Well, not much mention of him, is there? He seems to be on the sidelines, just kind of standing there watching. And what we see here is that Eve, who had been Adam's partner, now appears to have a new partner, doesn't she? The serpent becomes like the bridegroom of Eve. He woos her, he talks to her, she listens to him. Not listening to Adam, is she? She's listening to someone else, he might as well be her husband. And the serpent becomes... As it were, almost like a father to Adam and Eve. After all, it's, it's him they listen to, isn't it? Pretty horrifying, isn't it? Discussion quickly gets round to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. People often ask, uh, ask why, why did God have to put that tree there? Wouldn't it be better if he had never put that tree in the garden? Let me say that tree was good and necessary for precisely this reason. You see, Adam and Eve had one prohibition, one rule, only one, don't eat the fruit of that tree. It was to show that while they were kings in the garden, the Lord God was the great king. And they were only kings as they were tied to him. Only as he rules would they rule. The tree marked out God's authority. He was the one who said what was right and what was wrong. And without it, there'd be no good and proper boundaries about who was God. <laughs> And humanity is image. So to show that he's the one you listen to, there was that tree to show that the Lord God was the God and Father of mankind. Well, here are Adam and Eve in a life, in, in a world, a paradise that, that should have been full of life and fruitfulness. Where God should have ruled and Adam and Eve allow Satan to do the talking. They allow him to cast doubt on God's word. God's word that had only ever been good, they... They let this word, maybe it isn't good. Uh, they allow Satan to cast doubt on his character. God, who'd been supremely generous creator. Uh, they allow Satan to suggest, well, maybe God's a bit insecure. Maybe God's threatened. Maybe God's lying to you. This is, by the way, how all sin starts. It starts with doubting God's word. That's how sin starts. It starts with distrusting God's character. Believing lies about him. 
That's the strategy of, of, of Satan. That's his lies, that's his plan, and it's still the one today. Well, here's the supreme irony of what follows. Under God, Adam and Eve had, had supposed to be bringing fruitfulness to the world, right? Filling the garden, bringing life and beauty, cultivating it. But now under Satan instead, Adam and Eve aren't, aren't producing fruit, they're, they're taking <laughs> They're taking fruit. Uh, they're ruining God's world. They were supposed to listen to God and produce fruit, but instead they listened to Satan and produced death. Adam and Eve birthed sin into the world. And you see in it all what's going on? Adam and Eve have formed a new alliance with the serpent, haven't they? They, they are hand in glove with the serpent. They are listening to him. And so they produce Sin. They used to be God's children, but now it's more like they're children of Satan, right? They, after all, it's him they listen to, isn't it? They might claim to be sons of God. That might be what they used to be. It's not what they are now, is it? In this world of perfection and fruitfulness, it's like they pulled the plug. It's like they released the first infection. It's like they put the first crack in the porcelain. From perfection, they birth poison. From the sanctity of the new life, they create sacrilege and humanity with all that was ahead with Eve and her womb ready for fruitfulness there isn't the joy of the womb but the future of a tomb do you see the horror do you see the devastation do you see the ugliness and the poison and the death you'll hear this morning you say I felt a little bit spiritually flat I don't know that I'm wowed by the gospel as much as I should be. Well, listen, there can be all sorts of reasons for that, and it'd be great to talk with others about that. It'd be great to talk to brothers and sisters in Christ. It'd be great to talk about that in your growth groups. That'd be right and proper, and do so, please, but do so sensitively and lovingly and kindly. But I wonder if you see what this passage suggests. I think it suggests that we might be flat on the gospel because we've got flat with sin. We've done what Adam and Eve did. It can't be that bad, taking the fruit. Won't lead to death, really. Could it be that we doubt how bad sin is? We doubt the depths of its harm. We doubt the significance of its effects. Oh, that doesn't matter, we tend to think. It won't lead to anything. It's not so bad, that attitude, that desire, that deed. It won't lead to anything. We get soft on sin, and, and the sin it, it doesn't seem so far off normal. <laughs> We get soft on sin, and so we get dull on Jesus. You see, we won't see the heights of Jesus until we see the depths of our sin, will we? And so I take it this passage, this horror that we see here, I take it it's here to show us just that, the depths of our sin. Wow, how awful is my condition. Here is the seriousness of sin. Here is what Adam and Eve did. They were hand in glove with a serpent. And when I sin, what am I doing? The exact same thing. When we downplay sin, we're sidling up to Satan. We're enjoying his words and not the Lord's. No wonder his word becomes dull to us. We're intoxicated with the words of another. We've allied ourselves to him. See, we must marvel at the horror of sin, mustn't we? Adam and Eve birthed sin. And it was so bad that God had to lay down what some people call sort of firewalls. 
They're curses, is what they are. God uh, curses um, Adam. He curses Eve and he curses the serpent. And let me say again, this is good and and necessary, right and proper. Because humanity are allies of the serpent. And so rather than allow that union to spread with all its disastrous consequences, the Lord steps in to stop it. So look with me, chapter 3, and take uh, verse 16. Take verse 16, for example. The Lord says to Eve, you'll have pain in childbearing. Do you see what's going on there? Her fruitfulness is going to be thwarted. If she's going to live under Satan, under the serpent, if she's going to live in alliance with him, well, all that beautiful fruitfulness, all the filling of the world for God, it's not going to be as fast and as glorious and as wonderful as, as it would have been. No, 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 the Lord's going to slow it down. It's going to be, it, it's going to be difficult. If you're going to ally with him, well, it, it's going to be tough. And, and what about verses 17 and 18? The Lord says to Adam, oh, that work you do in the garden, all that work that was to be so beautiful, cultivating the garden, making things grow. Well, if you're going to be in alliance with the serpent, then your fruitfulness will be thwarted too. The ground will bring forth thorns and thistles. If you're going to work for another father, Adam, it ain't going to be easy. Give up on the serpent. You see what the Lord is doing. And then look at verse 14 and 15. The serpent himself is cursed too. Look at verse 15. Here's our verse. The Lord says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here is the promise. We've seen the context now. (laughs) Oh, the glory that once was ours. Oh, the pain and the tragedy of what was lost. God had birthed Adam to be his children. Adam and Eve only birthed sin and destruction. But here's the Lord's promise. From the offspring of Eve, down Adam's line, down Abraham's line, down Jacob's line, down Israel's line, would come a saviour. The serpent would be crushed. It is to make our jaws drop. It is to make us marvel, to be wowed at Jesus again, because the Lord promises if it will work. The Lord promises that from his people, from Israel, he would birth a saviour. He would birth a saviour. It was a tragedy. There was an alliance between humanity and and Satan. They'd eaten that forbidden fruit. It was a rebellion against the creator God, wasn't it? And yet we have a promise. I wonder if you notice how stunning that is. Let me ask you, what should we expect to happen at this point in the story, right? They've listened to Satan. They've taken the fruit. What should come next? If we've been reading carefully in our Bible, what should come next at this point? Flick back to chapter 2 and verse 17. God said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? The end of verse 17. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
Adam and Eve rebel, and what should we expect to happen next? Death. Immediate, sudden death. On the day you eat of it, said the Lord, you will die. We expect the end of Adam, the end of Eve, the end of humanity. And God would be right to do so, wouldn't he? But what do we find instead? Did it electrify you, the thought of the glory of God in the beginning? The glory of the sons of God? Did it make your heart weep as you saw the tragedy? Well, here is here's electricity <laughs> flowing back to us now. Because what do we find instead of immediate and sudden death? <laughs> we find God, the maker of the universe, walking in the garden. God doesn't destroy humanity. He doesn't abandon them, even though he could. He doesn't neglect them. No, he goes after them. He calls out, where are you? He wants to find Adam and Eve, and he wants to rescue them. Are you wowed by the good news? Do you see how outrageous it is? That in the light of this tragedy, God is the God who pursues you, who pursues us. God immediately goes about breaking up this alliance. He is on the hunt, and he is going to rescue And he makes this promise. And I wonder if you see how outrageous the promise is. The promise that Eve will have children. We'd have thought she'd be dead. But now she's having children. Oh, sure, there'll there'll be death in the world, of course. But Eve will live and have children before that. The human race will go on. Wow. It could have been so much worse, but God... And in his unmerited grace, chooses to allow humanity to live on and, 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 and to put in place a struggle. Adam and Eve would struggle against the serpent. Things will not be as bad as they could be. Offspring of Eve would do battle with the offspring of the serpent. Down through the ages, through the Bible story, godly men and godly women will take the fight back. Under God. Fight back against the serpent until one day... One would come who would crush the head of the serpent while being bruised. Here's the promise. The promise of one who is going to out-serpent the serpent. I'm told in the original languages that word for bruising, as it's attested in in various sources, has this sense of kind of slithering of serpentiness. Here's the promise. One is going to come who's going to out-serpent the serpent. The serpent thought that day he was having a wonderful victory. A day would come when a saviour would out-serpent that serpent. The the serpent would think, ha-ha, yes, I've put him to death. Only in his death would be the death of the serpent himself. The death of death in the death of Christ. All this was anticipated. We are supposed to read the Bible story. Each birth thinking, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? Here's this promise. Is this the one? Is this the serpent crusher? Noah, is he the one? Jacob, is he the one? Moses, David. I mean, David. I mean, he does some head crushing, doesn't he? But David, do you remember the famous battle with Goliath? Cuts off the head of Goliath. He crushes a head there, doesn't he? And he takes the head of Goliath, old goal, back to Jerusalem. Buries it there. Probably in a place called Golgotha. David, is he the one? There's anticipation there, isn't there? Wow. 
Wow. Anticipation of a, a rescue. Do, do you know, when you read the Bible, sometimes we do this Sunday school thing. And we go, oh, I know the answer. I know the, the answer is that this is about Jesus. Now, can I plead with you? Uh, don't do that when you read the Bible. I mean, please get to Jesus, please. The Bible is all about him. <laughs> but don't do that right away. When you read the Old Testament, try and put yourself in the story. Try and remember what people knew and what they didn't know. Try and put yourself in the narrative time of the in the story timeline. And get the anticipation, get the shocks, get the surprises, get the suspense, get the drama. There is so much to see. The Bible is a story that progresses. And just because we know the Savior, let's not read kind of over the top of the story to him. But rather, let's read through the story to him and get the excitement. Put yourself in the story. Feel the story. Feel the anticipation. Can I encourage you to do that? Because, listen, here in the Old Testament, the, the people of God were a people of anticipation. They were waiting for the serpent crusher. But can I say today, we are a people of anticipation still. Israel would birth the Savior. But you know, today, the church will birth the Savior, in a manner of speaking. It is in the church age that the Savior will come again. We are awaiting the return of the King. Christ's return as Savior and Judge. You know, sometimes we read the Bible story as if it's a story that is over there. And we forget that it's not a story that's over there. It's a story that's right here and we are in it. Christ has come and he is coming again. The serpent crusher has arrived. He has won the battle. The war has begun and he's coming again to end the war, to win the war. Are you feeling dull in the Christian faith? Remember the outrageousness of the promise. God promised to send a rescuer and he, he needn't have. But also remember that the story isn't finished yet. You're in it. We're in it. There's still so much to anticipate, which I take it isn't boring or unemotional or dull, but exciting. The Lord is about his work now. We're in it. Um, imagine you pick up a book of old fables, uh, something like uh, King Arthur, right? And you read um, how the story goes. You know, the promise is that the one that can pull the sword from the stone will be the greatest king of all England. And you read in the book and you go, oh, I know who that is. That's, that's King Arthur. And so you shut the book and you put it down. Well, how much would you miss? You'd miss the Knights of the Round Table, right? You'd miss Merlin the Wizard and all that fun stuff, right? But imagine, uh, imagine that book wasn't a fictional book. Imagine that book, well, <laughs> that you lived in Camelot. That that book was about your time and your history and your place that you live in that very story. Well, you'd never put that book down, would you? You're not going to get bored by it. Your nose is going to be in it. You're going to drink it all up and you're going to live it all out. Well, that should be us today, shouldn't it? Because this story we've been considering, it isn't about a galaxy a, a long time ago and far, far away. This story is our story. The glory that was. The glory we were made for. The tragedy of our rebellion and the glory we lost. And the wonder of glory promised in a Savior who has come and is coming again.
This is the glory of a story that you and I are in. And how it should make us marvel. So it's my prayer then that as we explore the Bible story, as we look at some of these birth stories, as we anticipate the serpent crusher, it's my prayer that we would put ourselves in the story and that we'd be thrilled afresh as we see how big God's promise of the serpent crusher is. Should we pray about this? As we pray, let's take a moment to reflect. Uh, here are some questions to ask yourself. Have I lost my thrill in the Christian faith? Maybe that's because I've lost my vision of what I was made for. I've lost that vision of the glory of humanity. The thought that we're meant to be children of God. Maybe, maybe that's you. Or ask yourself, have I lost my joy in Christ because I've lost that sense of the depth of sin? How big the rescue I need is. Uh, lost the sense of the horror of the fall. And maybe that's you. Or maybe do I fail to marvel at Christ because I've lost the outrageousness of the promise of a saviour. And I've lost the fact that the story, I'm in it. What is it for you? Take a moment to confess that to the Lord. Father, we pray, we want to marvel at Christ Jesus again. Help us by your spirit to see this story, to put ourselves in it. The story of the glory that was lost, but regained and still to come in Christ Jesus. We ask it in his strong name and for his glory. Amen.